This episode is brought to you by Sunday to Sunday with Father Mike Russo. Sunday to Sunday is a new online video series that explores the art, craft, and spirituality of preaching. Father Mike Russo hosts this preaching journey and goes to faith communities around the country to hear gifted witnesses of the gospel. For complete episodes, visit sundaytosunday.net. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. It is great to be with you, Ashley. Good to be with you, Olga. Yeah. You always pause a little bit, and it makes me feel nervous that you're not going to be excited to be with me as well. I, I am. I am very excited. Okay, good. <laughs> and I said great with Ashley and good with you, but I did not mean that to be like a lesser. I'm equally excited to be with both It's because of you. I'm wearing okay, a very professional outfit today. You are super professional <laughs> yes. today, so I get it. What's on tap, Zach? So we've had a few parties recently here at America Media. We've celebrated Jesuitical's 100th episode, as well as America Magazine's slash America Media's 110th anniversary. And so, needless to say, we overordered on beer. <laughs> and so there is an abundance of beer left in the office, and we are taking advantage of it. So yes, I've got are. a Stella and I got some an Amstel Light. Light. So, so cheers, everybody. Cheers. cheers. Um, so we're going to be getting into our guest a bit later in the show. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? A new director and editorial board has been named to Women Church World. And in a previous episode, we talked about how last month the founder and former director, Lucheta Scarafia, resigned with her entire editorial board. Yeah, so Women Church World is in a monthly insert inside of the Vatican's daily newspaper, L'Osservatore Romano. And Lucetta Scarafia resigned because she didn't feel like there was any editorial freedom for Women Church World from the general editorial direction of the Vatican's communications department. Right. So last week, the newspaper announced that Rita Pinci, an Italian journalist, uh, will be the new head of the board. Uh, and she said that, quote, I'm a journalist, I'm a believer, and I think the church needs the gaze and voice of women who represent more than half of the faithful. She was assured that she and the editorial board would have complete freedom with their editorial direction. What's our next story, Ashley? This week, we're introducing a new segment, Being Frank. <laughs> yeah, Frank Advice from Papa Frank. That is Pope Francis. <laughs> I'm very excited about this name. Yes. Me too. Uh, so this week, Pope Francis urged hairdressers and beauticians not to gossip during work. So, you know, there's this stereotype that your hairdresser is a huge gossip, and Pope Francis encouraged them not to give in to the temptation of chatter. Hairdressers responded, don't give in to stereotypes, Pope Francis. <laughs> no, but seriously, this is a, I, I, I was having deja vu prepping for this SOT because I feel like we just talked about it. And we kind of did because didn't Pope Francis ask everybody to give up gossiping for Lent too? Yeah, yeah he will not give up on this. He's very anti-gossip. And you know, I, I've gotten on my gossip soapbox before. I really think that if it's not malicious, it's just a really great way for people to bond and build community, you know? Yeah. Agreed. So uh, try telling that to Pope Francis. <laughs> What's our next story, Olga? So in April, the University of San Francisco became the first Jesuit college or university to go carbon neutral, which means that it has achieved zero net carbon emissions. Yeah, and so uh, USF has been working for decades to lessen its carbon footprint, um, but was finally able to reach zero, not by giving off zero emissions, but by offsetting those by purchasing carbon credits. So it was great to see the University of San Francisco sort of 
pick up Pope Francis's call to care for the earth and follow in some of other practices that different Jesuit universities are taking. It'd be great to see more schools, Jesuit, non-Jesuit alike, uh, do more for the environment. What's next, Ashley? So this is a little different. This is a story not based on a news event, but an article published here at America Magazine by our friend and former guest, Brother Joe Hoover. He wrote a piece called Dear Priests Who Improvise at Mass, Please Don't. Uh, So basically, he is addressing priests who, during the Mass, kind of go off script um, and saying that this can be distracting and puts the emphasis not on the Mass and the liturgy, but on the priest. So what do you guys think? Do you like so, improvisation mm-hmm. or no? So are we talking specifically the homily or other No, not parts? the homily, the okay. other parts. So like the prayer, the opening prayers, the penitential act, things so like that. So a couple that. examples I've seen is when the we finish the prayers of the faithful, you, you might see a priest be like, well, God, we said it, you heard it. How about it? <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> That's an example. Another example uh, could be you know, I've seen before is you get to the gospel and the priest might tell everybody, okay, just sit down. Uh, I'm just going to explain as I go, as I read the gospel to you, as if the Lord could have said it better. And oh, I'm going man. to tell you. Um, so, and also, you know, <laughs> someone in the comment section on the article said, Jesus said, do this in memory of me, not do this better than me. <laughs> good point. That's great. So those are the parts of the mass we're talking about. The homily itself is actually like built for improvis- improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so people should be spontaneous and or, or at least themselves in the homily. It's sort of the rubric part that we're talking about right so olga how do you because how do you feel about this you often go to protestant services where i assume there's there is more room or there is less of a script in the first Mm -hmm. place so honestly i am all in favor of improvisation during a service um and i think it's because i've gone to a lot of protestant services with my fiance and I won't lie, at first it was very jarring because I'm used to a Catholic mass and I'm like, I know when I want, I want to know when I'm going to do everything that I'm going to do. But over time, I really, I feel really good about the improvisation. I think like one of the church that we go to, the pastor every week, I mean, I I can't tell how much she prepares, but when she's in front of us, it looks as if she's just completely going with whatever comes to mind and whatever she's feeling. And in that moment, it, I just really appreciate how authentic it feels. And it, kind of makes me feel even more fa- more faithful in that moment to have that kind of authenticity. I'm all for authenticity, but if someone is just there w- when I'm at mass and someone's just sort of going with whatever comes to them, I sort of feel like they're wasting my time a little bit. It's like, oh, you definitely could have practiced or, mm-hmm. and you didn't even need to practice. The church has already figured out a formula that makes us last about exactly an hour. Right. <laughs> and everyone knows that. And I feel like there are so many different types of Catholics that anytime that a priest tries to appeal to one group of people, he's, you know, sort of taking off another group. And so one of the reasons we all love coming to Catholic liturgy is that we know what we're getting into and we can sort of meditate in this routine and liturgy. Obvious counterpoint, most Catholic liturgies are very boring. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm with Zach on this one. I, I very much value the uh, predictability of the mass. And I do feel like it takes, I don't know, it takes some like power away from the people who are like, okay, like I know it's coming. I've got this. When the priest is like, oh no, just kidding. I'm going to make up my own prayer. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. It was hard enough when they changed the translations of our responses. We had to relearn those. Right. And so if someone's doing it every week, forget about it. I've <laughs> you, lost my voice at mass. You guys got to come to one of my, ser- one of a service with me. I want to change your minds about right. improv. Okay. I right. accept, challenge I accepted. Your invitation, not a challenge. <laughs> She really feels. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> What's our next story, Zach? 
Last week, the Trump administration issued a new rule that gives healthcare workers um, some leeway to refuse uh, to provide services like abortion, sterilization, or assisted suicide on if they cite an objection for religious freedom purposes. Right. So, so this is these were laws that already existed, and the new rules from the Department of Health and Human Services uh, strength, strengthens the enforcement that the department can do. So that means, you know, investigating claims of um, of violations of conscience and uh, withdrawing federal funding if violations are found to be substantiated. And this rule applies to governments and private entities that receive HHS funds as well as universities that provide healthcare training. Right. And Roger Severino, who's the director of the HHS Office for Civil Rights, um, explained why this new rule is coming. He said there's been an uptick in complaints about conscience violations over the last year. Um, during the Obama administration, there was an, on average of over just over one complaint per year. And he said there were over 300 in the last fiscal year alone. So these are people who found that they were being discriminated against um, or forced out of their jobs because they refused to perform or cooperate with procedures like abortion or assisted suicide. Yeah. And a lot of groups, religious groups in particular, like the U.S. bishops are praising this rule, obviously citing this is, you know, a good thing for uh, religious freedom. Um, and then there are other groups who are concerned about how uh, treatments like this might also get lumped in for denying treat different treatments to uh, different groups of people, such as transgender people. Yeah. And another concern that the bishops raised that I think is very valid is their concern that this could, this is just going to be something that varies from administration from administration. So if there's a Democrat in the White House in 2020, then they can just rescind these rules um, and people will be less exposed to discrimination. So so they call for a legislative fix. Right. It's important that something as serious as religious freedom is not punted around like as a political football, I think is what they're saying. Right. And to end the signs of the times this week, we have a couple of sad stories to bring you. First, Sean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche and Faith and Light communities, which support people with disabilities and their families, died this week at the age of 90. Yeah, Vanier was an author, he's a philosopher, a theologian, and the L'Arche communities that he founded are these beautiful places where people with and without disabilities live and work side by side with one another. Yeah, I've never I've never been to a large community, but I've met people who have lived at them. Um, our previous guest, Jeremy McClellan, did, and everyone who has has had their life changed by the experience. Um, and in America's obituary for Jean Vanier, Father James Martin describes him as a living saint, which I think a lot of people who have met him or know of his work would agree with. Yeah, even Pope Francis uh, knew about his work, and when he found out that he was sort of nearing death, he called him last week uh, just to thank him for the witness that he brought to the church and to the world. And he also released his public statement saying, he was a man who was able to read the Christian call in the mystery of death, of the cross, of illness, the mystery of those who are despised and discarded. What's our last story, Zach? This is a really tough one. Um, Rachel Held Evans, who is a very popular Christian writer and a former guest of the show, died unexpectedly at 37 uh, last week. Yeah, she had been in a medically induced coma um, brought on by a virus. Um, 
And this this news uh, was met with an outpouring of grief. Uh, Rachel Evans was someone who, through her writing online and in her books, had touched so many Christians, um, especially Christians uh, who felt like they did not have a place in the church. Um, she, she was brought up evangelical and struggled with her faith and went through that struggle very publicly um, in a way that a lot of people say saved their own faith mm-hmm. yeah. and for for over 10 years she's written and confronted a lot of difficult issues within the christian community that spoke to people inside and outside of the church right? yeah and you just saw how many people were still connected to their faith or wrestling with their faith as a result of their engagement with rachel's work and i mean that itself was just like such a testament to the light she brought to the world yeah and and people from across the you know, faith and political spectrums uh, express that they they mm-hmm. they express what a loss it is for for Christians, no matter your stripe of Christianity, um, to lose this voice. Um, she was referred to as a prophet, which I think is a fair description. Yeah. So for this week's interview, we wanted to share the one that we conducted last year with Rachel because her work was so important, and we we got to experienced just a small part of that uh, when we got to talk to her and bring her to our podcast community. And for those of you who haven't listened, or even for those of you who had, it's we think it's a message worth hearing again. So here's our interview last year with Rachel Held Evans. Excited to welcome Rachel Held Evans, a New York Times bestselling author and blogger. Welcome to Jesuitical, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. We're I enjoy the podcast. We're so excited to have you. So your new book, uh, it's coming out in June. Is that that's right? That's right. And it's called Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. So we're going to get to the again part later. But you grew up loving the Bible. It was like a formative part of your childhood. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about the role it played? Yeah. I grew up evangelical Christian. So it was like the most important thing in my life. Um, Besides like my parents. And And Eggos. Sesame Street. Yeah. And Eggo Waffles. Yeah. It was. uh, Yes. I grew up, you know memorizing large portions of Romans and Corinthians before I was even 10 or 11. You know, we memorized them in yeah. Sunday school and in church. And uh, I mean, just to let you know just how much of a Bible nerd I was <laughs> growing up. I was in high school. I was on the homecoming court representing the Bible club. <laughs> they gave represent- <laughs> representation to the Bible club? They gave, yes. Every club got wow. a representative, and I represented Bible Club. So I was very, <laughs> I was the president of the Bible Club. So that what do you, like what do you wear, Don, to represent that? <laughs> <laughs> it was very much a participation trophy, kind of a homecoming. I see. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, and people kind of, people referred to me as like a Bible thumper, yeah. and, you know, and, I was and, the person. I was witnessing to the Catholics, you know, sorry. Okay, so so for Catholics who, you know, may not have grown up with such um, such biblical literacy, is is that that's a central part of evangelicalism, right? So you weren't you weren't you weren't outside the mainstream of evangelical kids. 
Well, I maybe was, a little perhaps, bit <laughs> on the extreme luxury. side. <laughs> but uh, I was, I, my parents were proud and uh, people admired me. So I was, I was on the right track for sure. So yeah, I was definitely, I was evangelizing the Catholics in high school. Um, so apologies to, to everyone, all of your listeners for <laughs> that. When you say you were witnessing, does that mean you were like teaching them Bible verses or seeing that they had some memorized? Oh, I was trying to ensure that they didn't go to hell. I mean, that yeah. was, you know, the, <laughs> because we were, uh, pretty conservative and, um, I kind of thought that everybody except for evangelical Christians were going to hell. So I was worried wow. about you guys praying for you diligently. And like, I went to a, a public high school, but it was in a really, I'm, I'm from Dayton, Tennessee, which is home of the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, yeah. which is a pretty historic event in the evolution <laughs> of evangelicalism in America. Can you j- just briefly describe what happened What happened in that trial? Yeah, so the, the, the Scopes Trial in 1925 um, was when... Uh, a, a local high school teacher was uh, prosecuted for teaching evolution in public schools. And it was really just a publicity stunt put on by the locals around here. They knew that if they convinced a substitute teacher to teach a little bit of evolution in biology class, the ACLU would support him uh, and it would turn into this big trial. And so they indeed, they had this trial of the century uh, here in Dayton and it put um some William Jennings Bryan was representing the um, the the teacher, and um, Clarence Darrow was representing the prosecution, and so it was all these big heavy hitters, uh, and it turned into this you know competition between science and faith. Mm. Um, hey, in fact, you you had a guest a few weeks ago who could have commented on yeah. this about yes, it was could. one of those moments that kind of created that notion that uh science and faith are at odds with one another so it was mm. evolution versus the bible so that that happened in my hometown and so was the, it something folk- you kind of grew up in like imbibing like was that that was the area yeah, you were breathing the, was that yeah there was this divide between faith and science mm-hmm. yeah you, you hear a lot about it and there's still that attitude of you have to choose between the Bible and evolution. And so a lot of my early perceptions of the Bible um, were that it needed to be defended at all costs. Mm -hmm. And it was contrary to science and that, you know, science was trying to erode it and um, that everybody was always after the Bible. And so it was super important to be able to defend it as um, inerrant and scientific and historical so I spent a lot of time uh, studying those apologetics only for it to all fall apart. <laughs> all right. So what was that like? When did it all fall apart? Well, you know, I kind of went through that thing you go through. A lot of folks go through when they're in uh, college. Uh, I went to a, a small Christian liberal arts college that actually uh, was named after William Jennings Bryan here in uh-huh. uh, Dayton, Tennessee. So I was studying, you know, that side of the debate. Um, and yet when I applied a lot of the same critical thinking to my own worldview, uh, I just realized it didn't work. And the Bible just did not function as a history book or a science book or an answer book or some kind of like owner's manual or a position paper. Like it didn't I, I kind of always heard that, oh, well, you have to have a biblical approach to politics or a biblical approach to um, science, biblical approach to sexuality and gender and all these things. But the Bible doesn't 
give us these just neat and tidy answers. You can always find another verse somewhere else that contradicts the position that you hold. Um, and so it, it kind of fell apart on a, you know, the, the, that paradigm for reading and interpreting scripture just fell apart. Was there, was there a specific, um, passage or story that was kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back and you're like, okay, I, I just can't believe this anymore. I think, and, and this is true for a lot of women, I think, who approach the Bible, uh, in their young adulthood or, or reapproach it. A lot of it was just the, the, the pervasive presence of patriarchy, uh, throughout the pages of scripture, um, because the Bible emerged from a, you know, from several patriarchal cultures and societies, uh, it reflects that reality and doesn't always say, there's not like a lesson at the end of some of these, you know, violent stories about women and troubling stories about women, like, and that's why patriarchy is a bad idea. It's <laughs> like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't self-correct, you right. know, you kind of have to read between the lines to uh, see a, any kind of a, uh, a, a narrative of justice and, to see that arc, you have to kind of uh, play around text a little bit. And I've been told you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> it just means one thing. Uh, right. There's a single lesson in every story, a single message in every verse. The idea is to crack the code, figure out what the Bible means, and then argue that position for the rest of your life. Was that? Uh, but a... the Bible just didn't work. It didn't work that way for me. <laughs> Was that like a painful experience? You know, sort of falling out of love with the faith you grew up with, with the Bible. Or did it feel liberating at the time? Was it desolating? Oh, it's awful. It's so lonely. I mean, and I think sometimes you're so desperate to have other people along with you on this journey. Mm -hmm. The hard part is not questioning God. I mean, that's hard. The hard part of doubt to me is feeling isolated from your faith community, mm -hmm. feeling like, oh my gosh, am I the only one? sitting here in church, not believing a word of this or not sure I believe any of this. That's super isolating and lonely and scary. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was hard. Sometimes it still is. And I mean, I think sometimes I pushed a little too hard to try and force people to have the experience with me. Like, a baby shower is not really t the time to bring up like eternal damnation, and you know, like. But you went for it. About the, <laughs> the problem of evil, everyone. Let's yeah. talk about the problem of evil. Um, you know, that's kind of my personality. But uh, yeah, so sometimes I think I push too hard to try and get people to experience it with me. Uh, but it was very, you know, lonely and yeah. disorienting. You mentioned you mentioned in your book that you were kind of able when you were isolated from your the community you grew up with, you were actually able to reach out to people online and found a community there that you could kind of work through these questions with. Um, it, what was that experience like as, as people who are interested in building virtual communities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so great because, I mean, I know the internet gets a bad rap sometimes and deservedly so. I mean, you know. <laughs> Jury, jury's still out on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's really the most terrible place in the universe. But, you know, occasionally, like for somebody who you know, lives in a small town in Tennessee and, uh, you know, hasn't been exposed to, um, you know, certain ideas, it can also be really enlightening. And so, you know, I just started writing through some of my questions and doubts and uh, posting them to my blog. And, um, you know, the responses I got just opened my eyes to all these new ways of thinking about faith and also just thinking about biblical interpretation. 
I mean, I remember once just writing, hey, so the story of Abraham and Isaac, what's up with that? It's <laughs> <laughs> not exactly like ideal parenting in my mind, but like Abraham gets praised for his faith, even though he was willing to sacrifice his own son. That seems like not the, the the moral lesson there seemed a lot murkier to me yes. as an adult than it did as a child, which you'd think as a child it would just freak you out. But but so that, and I remember just posing that question, thinking, I wonder if anybody else feels this way. And one, the responses they poured in were affirming that, oh, hey, you're not the only one to wrestle with the Bible and wrestle with certain stories and certain texts. And then two, you know, people would chime in. Hey, I'm a rabbi. Here's our take on this. Hmm. Hey, I'm a Jesuit. Here's our take on this. Like the the diversity of responses opened up for me the reality that the Bible is is at its best when we're wrestling with it together with a diversity of people. People coming from all different perspectives um, and, and different faith traditions. So you know the midrashic tradition of Judaism. Sh- really impacted how I began to read the Bible, which was um, allowed for a lot more play and imagination and curiosity. And and, and just the Jewish posture towards scripture embraces questions and tensions, doesn't try to erase those or sweep them under the rug. They really embrace those as part of what makes scripture um, meaningful to a community. It gives us something to talk about. It gives us something to wrestle with. These stories are not easy moral lessons. They're hard. They're, they're, they, they intrigue us. They, they bring us together into conversations we might not otherwise have. Um, and then Ignatian, uh, posture towards scripture too, was actually really helpful to me, um, in inviting people to inviting the reader to imagine themselves in the story. And how does that make this story different? I had just never really been given permission to play with the Bible. And I'd never been given permission to say, I don't know what this means, or this is weird, or even that can't be right. Like I never had permission to challenge the Bible. And yet when I did, when I began doing that, it's like all these new layers of meaning began to unfold. So you mentioned that like using Ignatian methods of lecture divina, um, what is that? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember when I first encountered um, like the Divina or um, that the Ignatian method of imagining yourself in the story and notice things like what is what is it? What would it be like being in the crowd of the five thousand people when Jesus broke that bread and that fish and it multiplied? Well, you know what? What does the Sea of Galilee? What would that have felt like? You know, blowing off the water and then mm-hmm. the wind, and you know, what would the crowd have been talking about? And what would it have smelled like and sounded like? I love that as a writer. It's important to me to to capture those senses uh, when I'm writing, and so engaging in scripture in that way just kind of brought it to life to me. And then just you know, engaging in, for example, reading. Uh, womanist interpretations of um, like the story of Hagar. So womanist interpretation is sort of that exists kind of at the intersection of feminist interpretations um, and then black liberation uh, theology perspectives on texts. And so womanist uh, biblical interpreters have found a lot of inspiration uh, in the, the character of Hagar, for example, who was the slave of Abraham and Sarah. 
who um, is the only person in all of the Bible to name God, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> you know, it wasn't yeah. a priest or a warrior or a king. Only one person in all of Scripture had the guts, the moxie to name God. What did she name and God? It, uh, she named God after a well where God appeared to her, Bel Laharoi, and it means you are the God who sees. Um, she had been forgotten. She was a slave. She had been mistreated. Uh, she'd been cast out into the wilderness while pregnant, uh, kind of left to die. And God showed up and God gave her a well and promised her that she would give birth to a son. And that son would be uh, the father of a great nation. And that son was Ishmael. And so she's actually an important figure in Islam as well. Right. Uh, and so she she names the spot where she encountered God and names God, the God who sees, uh, who saw her in her struggle and saw her in her oppression. And so that 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 encounter of an African slave meeting God in the wilderness and naming God is an important story in uh, when Black women approach the Bible and see some similarities in their own stories. Uh, and so like, just I had never thought about that story that way. And it and encountering that, it moved me away from that idea that, well, the story of Hagar is about one thing and one thing only, and you have to figure out what that's about, to, wow, the story of Hagar takes on all these different shades and shapes depending on who you're talking with. And how cool is that? You know, how um, inspiring is that? Do you feel like part of the problem is that, like, so much biblical exegesis is so bad, like whether that's in the academy or or like also from the pulpit, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think a lot of that just comes from that posture of we have to figure out what the Bible means. We have to be able to use it, you know, in our current political debates and harness it in such a way uh, as to sort of put people in their place. And so when you come with that posture, it's just like when you come trying to force the Bible into a certain theology, or a certain position, uh, it's just, you're going to end up doing it poorly because it will not cooperate. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. always this errant story that just upsets the apple cart or a verse or, um, you know, a part of a letter that just doesn't fit the narrative, you know, that challenges, um, you know, so if you say, well, then, you know, this, in this epistle, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Right. Well, and in another epistle, it has, you know, we, we see Priscilla teaching and having authority over men. <laughs> so right. obviously you can't say, well, that applies to all people at all times and all circumstances. Or as Kevin Bacon most famously demonstrated on behalf of the town council in Footloose, there is a time to dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it is sort of like a, exactly what you're talking about, where, you know, the whole town for religious reasons and for biblical reasons bans dancing. And then mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon, this unschooled, unchurched teenager pulls out the Bible and says, this is a time for dancing. That's exactly it. There's always there's always something that doesn't fit your narrative. And so if you are more committed to your, you know, pet theology and your narrative than, you know, than you are to to the reality of what we find in Scripture, well, then you're going to explain that stuff away in a, in a way that's nonsensical and unhelpful and kind of bizarre. Yeah. So so now um You've had this journey with the Bible from your uh, childhood years to now being comfortable with wrestling with it. Um, how how do you plan? You're you're a mother now. How do you plan on teaching the Bible to your kids? Oh yeah, people ask me this all the time, and I'm like, 
I don't know. I'm kind of, still kind of scared about it. You know, like just the other day, like I realized my kids, my two-year-olds going to school and they're, they're talking about Jesus there. And we've kind of introduced Jesus, but like, I don't know. I just, I just want him to know that like Jesus is not mad and not white, you know, like that's, those are the two <laughs> things I want him to know. You know, Jesus is brown. He's not white. Cause you know, I go into his preschool class and it's like white Jesus everywhere. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think we're just going to have to take like everything with parenting. We're just going to have to take us the day at a time. Um, but one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to shelter him from the Bible stories. Um, I'm glad I'm thankful as, as, crazy as I was as a kid, um, I'm really glad that I grew up knowing the Bible as well as I know it. Uh, that's served me well in life. And uh, I'm glad I was familiar with these stories. And I'm glad I could find my way through a Bible pretty easily. I want that same thing for my kid because I still believe that these stories are significant and important and life-changing. And they've influenced so much of our culture. And they have such a you know, important, there's such an important part of the story of our faith. Uh, I want him to know these stories and sure he's going to get like we all did. He's going to get the, you know, kids version, not the, you know, the violent genocidal <laughs> versions that you actually encounter when you get there. Right. You know, he'll probably sing Joshua in the battle of Jericho and do all the motions, never realizing that that story ends with, you know, God commanding Israel to kill every man, woman, and child. Yeah, that's city. A like he'll get, it is a rough one. Oh, yeah. I have to tell you all this. I was reading the other day. Uh, I like to see how children's books take difficult stories and what they do with them. And I found one the other day that was about um, Jericho and about um, Rahab, you know, the prostitute who uh, helped the spies um, check out Jericho. And what, what I thought was funny was the way they phrased her occupation. They said, um, uh, Rahab was able to help the spies because she had guests coming and going at odd hours. <laughs> <laughs> that takes some creativity. So yeah, gonna... <laughs> I was impressed with that. So he's that's the kind of those are the versions he's going to get at first. But I'm okay with that. Uh, I want him to know this, the basics and the stories, and then and then you know when they're older, uh, I hope that we'll be able to equip them to deconstruct those a little bit and to them in a new light and to be properly troubled by some of them. I want mm. my kids to be troubled by some of the stories in the Bible. I want to remain troubled by them. Nobody should ever, you know, God saved me from the day when the a story about genocide commanded by God doesn't bother me, uh, doesn't raise some big questions. So, uh, but I hope that if we instill in them a love for scripture, that they'll, they'll find that wrestling worth doing that yeah. these stories are worth wrestling with they're important enough to wrestle with awesome so thank you so much for joining us for talking about your new book we have one more question and i think you know oh, where you know this, is this is going yes <laughs> if you could canonize any one person living or dead catholic or non-catholic uh biblical or not who would it be and why <laughs> I know. And, and knowing you were going to ask this makes it so much worse because then you like overthink it yeah. big time. So I overthought it. And then I love what Sarah Silverman said with the Mr. Rogers. I was oh, like, I that oh, was a that's good a one. good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I kind of think maybe Sojourner Truth would be a good one. OK, she was just a badass. She was a, a former slave who advocated for herself <laughs> and she was not 
educated and um, she wasn't kind of the statesman that some of, you know, Frederick Douglass and others were. Um, but she, uh, yeah, she was one of the first to articulate feminism in a really cool intersectional kind of a way. My favorite Sojourner Truth line is when she was told by men that women shouldn't have as many rights as men because Jesus Christ was a man. And she, her famous comeback was, where'd you get your Christ? God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so, I've, always, I've always kind of admired her, and I, I think she'd be a good choice. <laughs> that sounds like the stuff the stuff that saints are made of. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for yeah, listening really to the show <laughs> and for joining us. Well, thank y'all for having me. It's an honor to be part of this. I've always enjoyed these conversations. All right, awesome. Well, have a great day and yep. a great rest of your week. Thank you so much. All Bye, right. Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Right. Bye. Now time for some housekeeping. Our sister podcast here at America Media, Deliver Us, published its final episode last week. Um, and if you haven't listened to Deliver Us or you haven't caught up yet, definitely go subscribe, download those episodes. Um, this is a, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church um, and how and it's from the perspective of one lay Catholic woman trying to grapple with all the questions it raises. So go to deliveruspodcast.org to check it out. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a desolation that has kind of, I've been thinking about it since last week and I was hoping you'd be gone. But um, last week I talked about what it's like to be, you know, a person of color in a predominantly white space. And one of the things that makes that the most difficult is kind of just dealing with sort of microaggressions that can happen in the workplace. Um, and normally I try to be extremely charitable because I work with people who I love and respect and who I know love and respect me as well. Um, but I, I'm currently working on a few projects. And after a colleague and I, uh, we both looked at it, took a look, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit because he he couldn't understand why the writer was adopting a certain tone, which to me, you know, as a Latina, it stood out to me. I was like, you know, this he's a black writer who's writing and he's angry and that's a part of the piece. Um, and he was just, he just couldn't understand where I was coming from. And it was so hurtful to kind of be in that space because I was also hurt by the comment, but then also trying to process feeling guilty about it and feeling like I should try to explain to him. And it, it was just extremely exhausting and draining. And for the past few days, I've been so unwilling to kind of, remove myself from that moment that I've not been looking at any of the good stuff that's been happening in at our place of work or like around me um, and it's really just the desolation is that it's pulling me from the things that I love doing you know um, and it's it's been kind of hard for me this week sorry to hear that thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you all right what do you have Ashley I also have a desolation um, so this past Saturday I was on the subway on my way to a derby party um, so, you know, in a good mood, ready for the day. Uh, and 
as you know, sometimes happens on the subway, uh, there was a young man who was emotionally distraught and he was just like on this, he was talking continuously about how he has no family, how his mom died, how no one loves him, how he sleeps on the subway and gets beat up every night. And my initial reaction was just like fear. Like I wanted to get away with him, away from him. Um, which, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's not the desolation. Um, mm -hmm. The desolation was like that. That initial fear led me to not just like, you know, keep my distance, but to like be incapable of looking at him and and kind of just kind of shutting him out as a, a, another human being worthy of my concern. It was just like, I don't I don't want to think about this. There's nothing helpful I can do. So like, I just want to not have this encroaching on my on my space right now um so yeah so the desolation is not necessarily that i didn't help him i don't know if there was anything i could have done to help him in that moment without maybe endangering myself but that like fear you know led me to judge and shut out this person um instead of you know praying for him or at least looking at him and acknowledging his presence um and and my obligation to him just as another human being um so yeah so that was my desolation this yeah, week those are tough situations yeah what do you have zach also a desolation this week uh i uh took the news about rachel's death kind of really hard i don't just as she wasn't someone I knew particularly well, but just someone I knew uh, talking to her last year and sort of through other people in our communities. And her passing, especially at such a young age, sort of confronted me with mortality. And I don't, that's not something I think about a lot, right? She was 37, and especially as someone who is, you know, looking to get married and thinking about all these vows and this life I want to plan with someone, you don't really imagine or plan for if it if it ends early. And I'm really afraid of that. And so the desolation is being stuck in that fear, right? I, I think that's a stage that I think maybe I hope a lot of people go through or not, but... I, the Ignatian thing that I know I need to do is just keep showing up to prayer, keep praying for Rachel and gratitude for Rachel and the things that she did and um, wait for God to come speak to me. Uh, but that's been really tough lately. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people going through yeah. that right now. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.